When the Woman Screams is a horror podcast that explores the cultural messaging behind why women scream in horror films. Content may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello and welcome to When the Woman Screams, a podcast where we break down horror films one scream at a time. In today's episode, we're exploring female horror screams in the workplace, and we're asking what those screams have to tell us about misogyny and female rebellion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Irwin, and on this podcast, we talk blood, guts, and spoilers, so listener discretion is advised. Professor, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Thank you. Professor Hill, please uh, make whatever statement you would wish to make to the committee. Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill. Clarence Thomas ran into trouble today in what had seemed to be a certain confirmation as a Supreme Court justice. My working relationship became even more strained when Judge Thomas began to use work situations to discuss sex. And he also spoke on some occasions of the pleasures he had given to women with oral sex. Now we go to Dan Quayle, the Vice President for the announcement of the tally. On this vote, the yeas are 52 and the nays are 48. The nomination of Clarence Thomas of Georgia to be Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court is hereby confirmed. On October 11, 1991, America watched as Anita Hill, a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma, detailed allegations of sexual harassment against then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. As she sat before the all-white and all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, Hill testified of repeated sexual overtures and graphic sexual comments made by Thomas while he was her supervisor. And there's a lot that we could unpack about that day, not the least of which was the disgraceful and misogynistic questioning by United States senators, Republicans and Democrats, that Hill endured publicly. But what took place in the Senate chamber and played out on televisions across America also had a very specific impact that not many saw coming. It showed American women that when it came to enduring incidents of sexism and harassment in the workplace, they were not alone. While public discussions of on-the-job sexual harassment weren't especially frequent in 1991, images of successful working women were not at all uncommon. And these images, which were largely white, informed by specifically middle-class consciousness and decade-specific cultural norms, created a template, for better or for worse, for what it meant to be a woman in the workplace. Because let's be real, women have always worked outside of the home, but people didn't really start paying attention until it became middle-class white women working outside of the home. In this 1940s newsreel, women working in factories producing materials for the World War II war effort are positioned as patriots doing all they could do to help the men overseas. Across the Atlantic to Berlin, across the Pacific to Tokyo, went news of the upheaval in American life. Millions and millions of women who had never lifted a finger outside their own homes now suddenly resolved to set the world house in order. 
women of America, like the men at their side, must flock to war jobs and stick to their jobs until that day when an end has come to the devastation of the earth. That day when peace has come once more to all lands, and especially to the land at whose gate stands the finest warrior, the greatest woman of them all. As men shipped out to fight, women took their places. In her book, The Homefront and Beyond, American Women in the 1940s, Susan M. Hartman writes that between 1940 and 1945, the number of women in the workplace grew by 50%, with homemakers now a presence in the workforce. But this presence didn't last. With the war's conclusion, the men returned home and this new workforce of women was no longer needed. And so despite polls showing that women wanted to keep these jobs and continue working, realizing the autonomy a paycheck provided, most were given a hearty slap on the back with a thanks for a job well done, and then were dismissed. But you can't unring a bell, and while 1950s pop culture was primarily ruled by chipper homemakers in a return to the domestic ideal, television and film did start representing working women positively provided they were single working women. While these conversations may not be taking place on screen, they were taking place in training videos, such as this 1959 one, ironically titled, The Trouble with Women, from the Aluminum Company of America, in which a male supervisor, who is frustrated with being assigned women employees, is reprimanded by HR. Question, all these things you've been talking about, marriage, absenteeism, personality problems, aren't they really just a part of life? Part of a woman's life, maybe. But I can remember the good old days when there were all men in my department, and we didn't have these problems. You didn't have the production output you've got now either. Look, Brad, you've got a new bearings inspector who happens to be a woman. You need someone, and there isn't a man available. It seems to me that whether the gal adds up to trouble or not is pretty much up to you. What's really jarring about that clip is that a variation of it could still be played today and be just as relevant. As pop culture media markets started to expand in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, the image of the working woman expanded from plucky ingenue and work-obsessed spinster to now include the career woman, who was also a wife and mother. The superwoman was a model of perfection that no actual human could ever attain. So it's perhaps not all that surprising that the 1990s also saw negative depictions of working women increase, a phenomenon famously explored in Susan Faludi's award-winning Backlash, the undeclared war against American women. It was during this environment, with an escalating culture war arguing about whether mothers should be at home or in the workforce, that horror films started to take the workplace seriously as a site of cultural critique. Because remember, horror films like to trespass against cultural norms, especially if those prevailing norms are being actively debated. If you think about the bulk of horror films, they tend to take place either in family homes or in remote locations. And while this is still overwhelmingly true, horror films have started to mine the workplace in surprisingly effective ways. 
So in today's episode, we're exploring three pieces of horror media that take place in the workplace and that center women's experiences. 1997's Office Killer, 2017's Mayhem, and 2018's The Purge TV series. And we're thinking through how these screams encapsulate women's experiences with workplace harassment. Our first film is the quirky horror comedy Office Killer from 1997. And this film does not get nearly the respect it deserves for its clever send-up of corporate culture and inner office politics. Starring Carol Kane as Doreen, an awkward but exceedingly talented magazine editor, the film is a satirical deep dive into what happens when microaggressions and water cooler gossip simply become too much to bear. Doreen is instantly relatable as the woman in the office whose abilities make her colleagues seek her out for help, even while they continually exclude her from social get-togethers. The film suggests that it's enough to make anyone snap, and eventually, that's exactly what Doreen does. Our first screams are actually two separate moments that happen sequentially in the film and work in tandem to showcase the harassment Doreen experiences in the workplace on a daily basis. The first scream occurs when Doreen has been notified that she is being demoted to part-time to save the company money and that she will be expected to work from home. Robbed of the security that her job provides her, Doreen is overcome with anxiety and is approached by the recently promoted Nora Reed, played by Jane Triplehorn. Mrs. Davis! Mrs. Davis! Uh, well, I've got an I've got an extra jacket at my desk if you want. Oh, here, 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 here! Wipe that stuff off. It's probably toxic. Oh. Thank you. Here. The second scream isn't actually a scream at all, but the absence of one. Here, Doreen is working at night alone with her boss. When she requests help with her computer, her boss begins to rub her shoulders inappropriately. While Doreen's fear is palpable, she is only able to respond with a whimper. Look, why don't you come over here and learn something so you'll know what to do next time you lose a story in the black hole. Thank you, sir. You think I want to be here with you tonight? Sitting around here hanging on to my job by a thread? You know how hard that asthmatic bitch Virginia will come down on my ass if the cover story is fucked because I was late again? You would think after a lifetime in this office, you could do one thing right. I think it's really important that we recognize that these two moments don't exist in isolation from one another, but that they are intended to satirize very specific experiences women face in the workplace. Doreen's ability to scream in the presence of a female colleague initially suggests a camaraderie between the women that at first feels like it's going to be a very feminist and very empowering statement. But Nora's inability to even remember Doreen's name even though she's the one who just executed Doreen's demotion, is actually a powerful reminder to the audience that workplace microaggressions can come from female colleagues just as easily as they can come from male colleagues. 
Still, Doreen doesn't actually fear Nora in this moment. And her scream is more of a response to being terrorized by a capitalistic framework that views workers as dispensable. A framework further complicated by gender discrimination. But the second clip shows the silence that can come when fear is entered into the equation. There is a clear power imbalance between Doreen and her boss that is then compounded by his touching her inappropriately. His actions, which are largely confined to his placing his hands on her shoulders as he stands over her from behind, are not frightening to Doreen because they are physically painful, but because of the aggression and sexual violence that they imply. Doreen's lack of a scream in this moment, despite her look of abject terror, is a reflection of the very real phenomena of silence that frequently accompanies moments of workplace sexual harassment. Although the term sexual harassment was coined in 1975, public awareness about recourse available to employees was still very limited. It wasn't even until the 1990s, when multiple Supreme Court rulings addressed sexual harassment, that companies were even inspired to formally introduce language into employee handbooks. David Crary in the Seattle Times notes that, quote, in 1998, a pair of Supreme Court rulings prompted many employers to adopt anti-harassment policies and to formalize mechanisms for employees to lodge confidential complaints, end quote. So for people like Doreen, who were never given clear guidance as to how to handle issues of sexual harassment, silence was frequently the only real option available because complaining could jeopardize your job. But silence has consequences, and we see one possible outcome in our next scream. Taking a smoke break alone in the stairwell, Kim, played by Molly Ringwald, one of the work colleagues who is forever excluding Doreen, is attacked when someone sneaks up behind her and attempts to strangle her with a scarf. We know that the assailant is Doreen, and the fact that she is now turning her suppressed rage toward her female colleagues is not coincidental. Doreen was sexually abused by her father, and that knowledge reframes somewhat her previous experience of sexual harassment with her male boss. Because what the film is telling us is that these moments of abuse, while varying in force and violence, are extensions of one another. They both come out of systemic male privilege and our culture's reticence to believe women who have experienced abuse. Doreen directs her violence toward other women because she's learned from her own experiences that you can get away with abusing women. And in a way, she's right. Kim, who survives Doreen's attack, immediately goes to Nora's office to report Doreen. And what happens? You guessed it. No one believes Kim and Doreen's reign of terror continues unchecked. 
It's a scathing critique on how women can replicate violence in the workplace when corporate cultures fail to protect all of their employees. Our next screams come from 2016's The Belko Experiment. A morality tale steeped in violence, the story centers on 80 American employees of a company located in Colombia who are told that they must choose 30 colleagues to be executed or 60 employees will be chosen at random. As grudges over nepotism and microaggressions begin to reveal themselves, the employees realize that they only have two options, kill or be killed. For Leandra Flores, played by Adrian Arjona, survival is complicated by her own history of sexual harassment while on the job. As the executive assistant to the chief operating officer, Leandra is routinely harassed by top executive Wendell Dukes. In our first clip, Leandra is fleeing down a stairwell with her boyfriend and the security guard when she is accosted in the stairway by her boss and Wendell. After her companions are bludgeoned and stabbed, respectively, Wendell is instructed to grab Leandra. My mother never wanted me to move to Bogota for this job. Back of my head will be blown off, and the first thing she'll say is, You stay! You stay! Don't you call me pervert. Chill out, Wendell. Come on. I said, come on! Leandra's scream here is obscured by a cacophony of voices that almost drowns her out and reflects, rather aptly, her experiences working at Belco. We know from earlier scenes that Wendell has a history of making unwanted comments toward Leandra and that he stares at her to the point where she feels the need to close her office blinders. And yet, even her role as the COO's executive secretary does little to shield her from these unwanted advances. She may have the ear of the boss, but really, what good does that do when the corporate culture is such that sexual harassment is written off as awkward flirting? For his part, Wendell is convinced that Leandra is simply playing hard to get, and he reminds her that he has the emails to prove it. But the emails in question are actually entreaties by Leandra for Wendell to leave her alone. It's a subtle moment in the film that speaks to a much larger cultural shift. According to a 2002 study in cyber psychology and behavior that compares impersonal sexual harassment with virtual sexual harassment, findings showed that misogynistic behavior and sexist language read as more threatening when received online. And yet, definitive statistics as to how many women have experienced cyber sexual harassment are difficult to come by. We know, according to a 2018 NPR report, that 41% of women have experienced cybersexual harassment, but those numbers account for experiences in and out of the workplace. According to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, employers paid out a record $68.2 million as a result of sexual harassment violations, but whether these violations were in-person or cyber-based is unknown. And yet, figuring out where the line is between cybersexual harassment and in-office sexual harassment is not as easy as it would seem. And it's a point that's made well throughout Leandra and Wendell's interactions. 
We see Wendell harass Leandra over email, but he is doing so from his office, which also offers him a direct line of sight to her, such that her discomfort is exacerbated by his leering. Leandra's scream in this moment is a recognition that the offline, inline personality harassment that she has been experiencing is now a direct and immediate threat to her safety. And this threat is compounded by the breaking down of a social order, which enables Wendell's threat of physical violence to go from implied to direct. This threat comes to a head in our second scream, which occurs when Leandra stumbles upon Wendell, who is in the throes of killing a colleague. Leandra, that's, that's not right. Let's put that down. That's Tyson. He was your friend and you killed him. No. Yes, Leandra. It's Barry. I don't know how many he has, but I think, I think I can be. attempt to explain his actions in killing his friend echo closely how he rationalizes his sexual harassment of Leandra. In both cases, Wendell expresses a victim mentality. He had to kill his friend because otherwise he might not rack up enough kills to survive. He had to harass Leandra because she insisted on playing hard to get. In both cases, Wendell resists taking accountability, and his ability to rationalize his actions, no matter how heinous, makes him a threat. Leandra's scream in this scene reflects the immediate danger she is facing, as well as her own anger that Wendell's violence has been allowed to exist unchecked for so long. Her scream is one of rage, no longer confined through quiet threats of professional retribution, and it isn't lost on the viewer that it took a complete and utter breakdown of cultural norms for Leandra to finally stop Wendell's sexual harassment. Our final scream comes not from a film, but from a television series. Based on the popular film franchise The Purge, season one from 2018 is notable for both its nuanced and diverse characterizations, as well for its authentically terrifying premise. It is also arguably one of the few television horror adaptations that exceeds its source material. Season one takes place in 2027, and for those following the Purge timelines, the events take place between anarchy and election year. The show's premise is that we are now in a dystopian version of the United States, in which crime is controlled by allowing citizens to purge, one a year for a 12-hour period. This means that all crimes, including rape and murder, become legal and all emergency response services are suspended. The series follows three separate storylines, one of which is Jane Barber's story. Played by Amanda Warren, Jane is an executive who begins purge night locked away in her office with her subordinates. 
as a part of Riker Moore Equity Company, Jane and her colleagues are asked to work purge night with assurances that so long as they stay on the protected floor, they will be safe. But predictably, things don't exactly go according to plan. Our first scream comes in episode 3, titled The Urge to Purge. In the two previous episodes, we were introduced to Allison and Mark, two employees vying for a promotion that Jane will decide. And at first, it seems like the two are in cahoots to lure Jane off the protected floor so that the two can purge her without ramification. But things take a turn when Jane arrives and discovers Allison brutally stabbing Mark. My promotion, or is that on me? The revelation that Allison has been plotting Mark's death all along as a means of quite literally eliminating the competition is shocking because it seemingly goes against Allison's perky and non threatening workplace demeanor. The ferocity by which she stabs Mark in the scene is matched by Jane's scream of horror because Jane, despite her education, simply did not see it coming. Her scream is one of horror at the brutality in front of her, but it's also a recognition that her behavior of pitting the two against each other for the promotion has yielded consequences she never expected. Although Allison's question about whether she needs to notify HR about her promotion is meant to be darkly humorous and to punctuate the brutality of Mark's murder, it also suggests that women looking for professional success in the workplace are backed into a corner when they are not supported by other higher-ranking women. In research published in the April 2017 Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, researchers found that women in senior management positions will advocate for quotas for women who are on their same level within a professional organization, but not for junior women employees. Studies also show that women in the workplace experience a higher degree of incivility from women than they do for men. And for Allison, that's certainly the case, as we see Jane project her anger at her own situation onto Allison, but not Mark. We initially think that Jane will be the target of an Allison and Mark conspiracy because Jane is far from an easy boss. She is shown to be short, demanding, and all business when it comes to those she supervises. It would be easy to dismiss her as a simple cog in a capitalistic wheel, if not for our knowledge that Jane is a highly credentialed professional who was just passed over for a promotion because she refused the sexual advances of her lecherous boss, David Riker. And so, Jane's scream in this moment is a tacit recognition of the role she's played in perpetuating the toxic masculinity that also limits her own success. But as a black woman in a white male-dominated industry, something the series alludes to in a slow pan of the people who sit with David in the upper echelon executive suite, Jane is navigating cultural barriers to success that are informed by gender and racial discrimination. In this next scream, Jane, who has left the safety of her office with the goal of purging her boss, finds herself at his mercy instead. It's a living, breathing art gallery. 
You can look and touch, but nothing more. The rules are very strict. There's no penetration, no nudity, and everything happens over the clothes. If all the ladies behave and keep quiet, you all get to go home in the morning. Jane, when my father founded this company, times were simpler. Men were men, and women were not. Then again, he lived by the motto, no blacks, no broads, so I'm sure you can appreciate how far we've come. Thanks to a steady stream of PC bullshit, everything's become a federal crime. I tell a woman I can't stop thinking about her, she gets bent out of shape, she runs to the times, I lose my company. I've done nothing wrong, and my life is ruined. But not tonight, Jane. Not tonight. Tonight. Tonight, we don't have to fight it. We can give in and become the men that we once were. Ain't America great? Yeah. Anya here learned how to play the game. Oh, yeah. How do you think she got the corner office? You're pigs. Pigs, this is disgusting. Nobody's being killed here, Miss Barber. We're not, uh... Animals. What are you then? We're human beings, purging. This is our right as Americans. As men. You sick son of a bitch. I should have never, ever tried to call it off. But you did, you see. You did. And that's what makes you weak. you can find a more overt depiction of toxic masculinity in the workplace than is represented by this scene. David's yearning for the good old days boils down to anger that men can no longer act in the workplace with impunity. And Jane's scream here represents her terror at what is about to occur, but it also represents her awareness that men, in particular white men, still hold the lion's share of power both in and out of the office. According to a National Women's Law Center report examining sexual harassment charges filed by women between 2012 and 2016, black women are more likely to experience and file charges of sexual harassment in the workplace. Similarly, Alana Akhtar of Business Insider reports that, quote, black women need to work an extra 233 days to earn what white men earn, end quote. With this data in mind, it's clear that Jane's story is representative of a capitalistic framework rigged toward white men. We know via flashbacks that Jane was passed over for a partnership when she refused David's sexual advances, and that, in effect, her career was essentially stalled at middle management. But as her scream indicates, resisting sexual harassment doesn't mean that the threat is eliminated. Sometimes it intensifies, and women, particularly black women, are left to deal with the consequences. Anita Hill's bravery that day, she sat before male senators and answered increasingly personal and intimate questions about her sexual harassment experience, continues to reverberate culturally, both for its shameful showcase of institutional cultural misogyny and for its public testament to other women experiencing workplace sexual harassment that they were and are not alone. 
The screams we've considered today explore women's reactions to both sexual harassment itself, as well as the institutional frameworks that protect such behaviors. And they are a reminder that while progress has been made, there is still a lot of work to be done. This wraps up our look at horror screams as a response to sexual harassment. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, I recommend Mastering Fear, Women, Emotions, and Contemporary Horror by Riki Schubert, Reckoning, The Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment by Linda Hirschman, She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement by Jody Cancer and Meghna Twahi, and the Clarence Thomas Confirmation Transcripts, available through the Library of Congress. If you have any comments, gripes, or observations about this episode, you can find me at the When the Woman Screams website, link in the description. In our next episode, we're talking queer coding as a result of the Hayes Code and thinking through what these screams have to tell us about America's complicated history of homophobia. I hope you'll scream with me. 